Well, good morning, church. As I've said before, as I've stood before you, it's in many ways like coming home. And uh, after being in London not too long ago, as many of you have asked, doing outreach there, and this week, just getting back from Saskatchewan, it is extremely cold up there. I am thankful uh, to be here. I think the last time I was here was was Good Friday, and so uh, just grateful for you reaching out and asking me and my family to be here once again. And as always, I just want to avail myself to you, uh, church, both individually and corporately. It is uh, is a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. So in the Old Testament, more towards the front, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll read the verses here in a moment. We'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13. But before we go to God's word, will you join me? Will you bow with me in prayer? As we go before his throne, let's pray. Father, we are so, so grateful that you would hear from us. We ask that you would feed us. That you would feed our soul today by your word. That you would increase our faith. Oh God, we find great comfort in your word that you'll not, you'll not extinguish a, a smoldering Flax, and, and you'll not, Lord, uh, crush a bruised reed. And, and so, Lord, there are many of your people here that they're just barely smoldering. Many of your people are low and are crushed, Lord. And so we ask by your spirit, and by your preached word, that you would fan that flame, that you would bring healing. You tell us in your word you're near the brokenhearted. So give us truth that would bind us up. And Lord, for lost souls today, that you would... Oh, by your spirit, that you would give them ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to believe. That they too can be seated at your table. God, we're needy. We need you. Speak to us. Feed us. Increase our faith. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, hopefully you found your way to the second Book of Samuel in chapter 9, always want to remind you that this is the infallible Word of God. That means it cannot be wrong. It's the inerrant Word of God. It contains no errors. and It's the inspired Word of God. It is, it is God's Word that was breathed, spoken, as men of God wrote, as God moved them to write. And so much of this world will, will try to bring doubt into your life about the Word of God. But you must You must remain resolute. You must remain firm that this is God's word and it is for us. 2 Samuel chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and he prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and he said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelled in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both of his feet. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, here in chapter 9, we, we find King David. And how we find King David is his enemies are defeated. The kingdom has now been established. And we imagine and we see here King David, he, he begins to reflect. He, he really begins to consider. Look there at verse 1. Now David said... Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So King David, once again, he's eradicated all of his enemies. All the threats have have been done away with in his kingdom. And now he remembers a promise that he has made. So he he looks for someone to show the kindness of God to. To an uh, undeserving person of Saul and Jonathan's house. Now, as you may remember, and if you don't know, a quick little history lesson. As you may remember, Saul was the king before David. And who was Saul's son? Jonathan. Jonathan was also a very dear friend to King David. But King Saul and Jonathan, they are killed in battle by the Philistines. And this all happens when Mephibosheth is five years old. As you know, I have five children, and and some of them have some rather unique names. But I don't think any of us here know someone named Mephibosheth, do we? It definitely sticks out in our mind. And my prayer for us today is that we would, in some way, in some measure, see ourselves in Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth is five years old when his grandfather and his father are killed in battle. And Mephibosheth's nurse, as scripture tells us, she hears of that. And so she she gathers Mephibosheth up. He's only five years old. And she begins to to escape. She begins to to flee to to some place for safety 
Well, he's the heir, right? His, his grandfather, his father had been killed in battle, and she scoops up Mephibosheth, and, and as she is trying to escape, the Bible explains to us that he is accidentally thrown to the ground. His feet are then permanently maimed. So, so he's dropped as she begins to flee. There's, as we would say, some kind of freak accident. And now at five years old, we have Mephibosheth here, who is lame, who is crippled in both of his feet. So I want us to pause for just a moment and think of this. Has there been in your life some life-altering event that has happened to you that you have no control over? Like Mephibosheth, have you been a victim of someone else's actions? Has there been trauma or injury done to you? Well, let me encourage you this morning. There is hope. There is hope. And we will see that. So here in verse 1, David asks, Is there anyone anyone left in the lineage of Saul that, that David may show him his kindness? So first we see here King David. We see the king and he's seeking, right? He's, he's looking for. And he says kindness here. And we need to dig just a hair deeper. It's, it's not just simply being nice for niceness sake. But the word kindness here, it means this covenant love, this covenant care. Oftentimes, in some modern translations, it's interpreted loving kindness. It's this constant, abiding favor. Really, it could be called mercy or steadfast love. So when you read that word kindness, I don't want you to think, oh, he's just being nice. No, 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 it's much, much deeper than that. And then the end of verse 1 says... It's for whose sake? It's for Jonathan's sake, right? It's for Jonathan's sake. For the sake of Jonathan, as we'll see, it really has nothing to do with Mephibosheth. So what you're seeing here in this passage is this commitment to another that's based on a promise, or it's, we would say, based on a covenant. A promise that was made both to Jonathan and to Saul. Back in 1 Samuel 20, we don't have to turn there, but, but Jonathan, he asked David before he's killed, much earlier in their life, he asked David to make a vow. He, makes, he, he asked David to make this covenant promise to him. Jonathan knows that Jonathan himself will not be, become king like his father Saul, but he knows that David will become the king. And so Jonathan approaches his friend David and he asks him to make this promise and he says, will you, will you promise not to cut off your kindness to my lineage, to my house, to my offspring, to my descendants? Jonathan says, even after God has eliminated everyone that is your enemies, do you promise that you'll be kind to my offspring? Well, David also makes a similar promise that's in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And he makes this promise to Saul, the king, that he would not cut off the king's descendants. That he would not eliminate his lineage. That he would not eradicate King Saul's last name. You see, there's much more background to this story than we first realize. The king David has made a promise both to Saul and both to Jonathan that, that he would show this covenant-keeping, loving-kindness abiding favor to their offspring. So David makes a covenant that he keeps. Who of us here have made promises that, well, we didn't always keep them? Yeah. 
And sometimes they're made with the best intentions, right? Oftentimes, I'll tell my kids, hey, we're going to do this today. And things happen, and there's chaos, and we have to do things and go out of town, and then it comes to bedtime. There's some, some things they can't remember, but they always remember things that keep them past their bedtime. Dad, remember you said we were going to... Oh, I did. But it's midnight, and we're not going to do that. We're way past our bedtime. You see, what happens is sometimes our flaws, our shortcomings, even our made with our best intentions... We fall short, and you know what we do? Sometimes we reflect that upon God, and we say, God, you're like us. But let me encourage you this morning. He's not like us at all. He's holy. He's set apart. He's he's one of one. He's in in his own class all himself. And every one of his promises, he keeps. He keeps them. So David makes this covenant here. He makes this promise to to Saul and to David. Or excuse me, to Saul and to Jonathan. But you know, David doesn't always keep all of his promises either. But in this instance, he does. Uh, We we could say this is probably David at his best. For not too many chapters later, we see David falling into all kinds of sin, adultery. Having a man murdered and lying and many other wicked sins. And let that be, be a warning to our own selves. We, we see, wow, what an example, David. And just a few chapters later, sin. Terrible sin. So, Saint, let me encourage you to go before the throne of grace always. Always being on guard. For we too can fall, seeking the Lord's mercy and strength. But here... David keeps his promise. And God always, always keeps his promises. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said to Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? So we see here in verses 2 and 3 that the king is still seeking. Ziba is now summoned. And David tells him, this is what I'm looking for. And Ziba tells David, well, yes, there's a son of Jonathan and his name is Mephibosheth. The king is seeking. So let us pause again and let us ask ourselves this question. Is God seeking you this morning? Is he searching for you? Is he calling you? I'm I'm not going to guess what he's calling you to. Perhaps you're a child of God and you've just been in open rebellion. He's calling you back home. Perhaps you've just played the game and you're not a child of God. He's calling you to faith this morning. Is God calling you? Is the king searching for you this morning? Look at verse 4. So the king replies to Ziba, well, where is he? And Ziba says to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. So Ziba tells David where he can find Mephibosheth. And it's a place called Lodabar. Again, words have meaning. And Lodabar means without a pasture, not not a grassy land. It means pastureless. 
In the word debar or debar, it means simply word or, or thing. And the prefix, as many of you know, lo means no. So when you put that together, lodebar means no thing. It's a nothing town. It's a dry and weary land. There's no pasture there. It's really not much of a place. And so here is Mephibosheth. He's lived a hard life. Hardly anyone knows him. He's been a victim of harm. His granddad and dad were killed on the very same day when he's five years old. He's physically impaired with, without the modern conveniences of nice wheelchairs and, and flat, wide sidewalks. And now we find him in Lodibar. He's living in obscurity. He's living in desolation. Is that you this morning? Would you say, you know, my life's kind of just living in not much of a place, spiritually speaking. I kind of feel like my life is a no thing. It's nothing. My, my, My life day in and day out is really just desolation and obscurity. There's hope. There's hope, church. And it's in the kind king. And his name is Jesus. Look at verses 5 and 7 with me. 5 through 7. Then King David sent, and he brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, and he prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. Verse 7. So David said to him, do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Remember, David says, is there anyone of the house of Saul? Is there anyone of the lineage of Jonathan? And he finds out, well, well, yes, there is. And so the king says, well, then go get him. And then the king sends for Mephibosheth, and he is brought before the king. And now the king speaks to him. Now, imagine what Mephibosheth must be feeling. Imagine what Mephibosheth must be thinking. Uh-oh, the king's looking for me. You see, it was common then when a new king, a new, a new heritage, a new lineage of people, when they came to power, well, then all the, the offspring, all the potential heirs of, of the old dynasty, of the previous king, well, well they would all be killed off. It makes sense now why Saul and Jonathan asked David to be kind to their last name, to their lineage. And the reason they would do that, of course, you can imagine, would, so there wouldn't be some uprising and there wouldn't be factions and there wouldn't be someone else coming up and saying, no, I, that's my rightful throne. So he's, he's fearful, right? But what does King David say to Mephibosheth? The king says, don't be afraid. He says, fear not. I'm going to show you the kindness of God based on a promise. I want you to see something here. Look at verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. What's the next phrase say? Then David said. Why is that important? Look at verse 2. 
towards the end of verse 2, it says, And the king said. Look at verse 3. Beginning of verse 3. The, who said? The king said, right. And and now look at verse 4. So the, who said? The king said, right? And then we come to verse 6 where we're at this morning. And it says, then David said. You see, now it's not just king to subject, but now there's intimacy. Now there is this, this nearness, there's this closeness. All leading up, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, it's the king said, the king said, the king said. And then we come to verse 6, and David said. And imagine what Mephibosheth may have thought. When the king, who is now referred to as David, says, Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth perhaps was thinking, he knows my name? He called me by name? The king knows me? Does the king know you? Is God calling you today? Is the Spirit of God calling you by name even now? And perhaps you've dreaded the reality of of encountering God, of seeing yourself as you really are. But this morning, that can all change. Is God calling you unto Himself by name? And let me remind you of, of God's grace. God's grace is undeserved, And it is unearned. That's what grace is, right? Getting something good that you don't deserve. And many reply, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how messed up I am. Or how damaged I am. Or how hurt I am. Or I'm just lacking in some way. Fine. Good. That's the whole point. God's grace is sufficient. Stop making excuses. Whatever the context, stop making excuses and know that God's grace is enough. Look at verse 7. So David said to him, David says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Here's where we really come to the heart of this text. He's told, do not fear, Mephibosheth. I'm going to show you loving kindness. I'm going to display my my merciful, kindly goodness to you. Because of, or for the sake of, your father. In other words, on the account of a promise I made to someone else, I'm going to do good to you. You see, when you're a king, you want nice people around you. You know, polished people. We we specifically think of the historical context here. You want classy people in your royal party. Educated, handsome people. And so as we read this in the historical context... 
we have to think, what, what kind of a king? What kind of a king would want someone who is, who is crippled? Who has shame all over him because his father and grandfather were killed in battle. They weren't very good leaders. I mean, he's a king after all. He, he has class. He's royal. He's regal. He's a big deal. It would be very, very uncommon to have a lame person in the royal court shuffling along, dragging behind. It would distract and it would slow the king down and it would make things real inconvenient. You know, the king's important. He's got things to do. He's not running a charity cause. Why would a king do this? Why would a king show any kindness to Mephibosheth? What what could Mephibosheth possibly have to offer? You get it now? It's more than just being nice. It's this vow-keeping. It's this covenant promise. It's displaying this loving, faithful kindness. It's abiding mercy. And it's based on something else, and it's based on someone else. So what kind of king would have a broken person in his royal court? tell you, a good king. The best king. An infinite king. A wise king. Do you know who I'm talking about? The Bible calls him the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. That's who will have broken and hurt people. Is King Jesus calling you to surrender to his kingship. Well, did you catch that? King David's not being merciful to Mephibosheth because of anything Mephibosheth has done. David is showing this kindly goodness to Mephibosheth based on a promise he made, on a, on a covenant he made to someone else. We see a wonderful picture of salvation there, do we not? You can't earn God's favor. You don't deserve God's favor. I don't deserve God's favor. We don't deserve His mercy. But because of God's promise to everyone that will believe in Jesus Christ, because of Jesus, it's based on His person, who He was, who He is, what He has done. Well, God shows His loving kindness to sinners like you and like me. Look at verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. He says, I'll restore all your grandfather's land to you. What he's telling him is he's saying, Mephibosheth, you now have an inheritance. And then he is escorted and moved into the palace. So we must ask ourselves this morning, what is our inheritance in Christ or apart from Christ? What is our inheritance? Well, for the unbeliever, and I don't say this scoffingly or laughingly, but I say this very soberly. For the unbeliever, for the one who has not come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, here's your inheritance. The inheritance for the unbeliever is damnation. The Bible says the wages of sin. That's the paycheck for sin. That's what you get. 
The wages of sin is death. If you're outside the family of God, if you're not a child of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your inheritance is the wrath of God. But, but, for the child of God, according to 1 Peter 1 and 4, there is an inheritance for you. An inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for the true child of God. Colossians 1.12 says the Father has qualified. He has made you worthy. He has qualified those who have Jesus as Savior and Lord to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And he continues by saying that he has delivered us, those who have come to Christ Jesus for salvation. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son in love, in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. And he continues, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, to make things right, all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you and me, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. That's your inheritance, Christian. So are you Mephibosheth? Are you lame? Are you crippled in your sins? You have nothing to offer. You have no standing. Well, apart from Jesus, we all are. That's who we are. So look at verse 8. What should our response be? What should our response be, unbeliever? What should our response be, Christian, your entire life? Look at verse 8. Then he, being Mephibosheth, then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Mm. Mm. Is that our response? Our reaction should, should be the same as Mephibosheth. Can you say, Lord, who am I that you would look my way? My God and my King, I am a nobody with nothing. So when the new king and the former enemy of your grandfather request your presence before him, it's not usually a good thing. And what's Mephibosheth feeling now? He's feeling fear. And so Mephibosheth, he falls down in front of David and he falls down to, in front of the king in, in complete surrender and complete humility. He has humbled himself. And then what does the king say? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. And, and he's not only now going to be given an inheritance, he's not only going to be given the land of his grandfather Saul, but now he has been made a permanent guest at David's table. Did you see that? Then to verse 7. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. What a promise. So we see the king has found him. 
The king has summonsed him. The king has now treated him with kindness. The king has met his needs. He has seated him at his table. He's given him an inheritance. He's treating him as a son. Is that not what God does for sinners? He searches for the lost sheep. He bids them come. He treats them with his mercy. He provides a Savior to meet their need for salvation. He seats us at his banqueting table. He adopts us into the family of God. And he treats us as sons. Sons and daughters of the Most High King. What keeps you from sitting at the table? Jesus in Luke 14 tells a story of this great supper feast. And in this parable, in this story that Jesus tells there in the Gospel of Luke, there's this man and he sends out his servants uh, to, to have this big, this big party, this big banquet, this big feast. And so as the servant goes out to invite the friends of his master, he, he goes out and one says, ah, you know, I just bought some, some livestock, I've got to go check them out. And so he goes to the next friend, and the next friend says, ah, you know, I just got married and, you know, I got a honey-do list. Or maybe he's on his honeymoon, but his excuse was, I just got married. And then he goes to, to another one, and the other one says, you know, I just bought some land. And maybe he's a real estate investor, or he needed to get things cleaned up. That was all their excuses. We would say relatively good excuses. And so the servant reports back to his master, and he says, none of your friends can make it. They're all tied up doing things. And the master is angry, and he is upset. And he says, you, servant, you go into the streets and into the alleys and bring in the poor and bring in the maimed and bring in the blind, bring in the lame. So the servant does. And he brings them in. And he goes to the master and he says, I've done what you said. But there's still more room. And the master says, well then, well then go out into the highways. Leave the city and, and go further out. He says, go into the highways. Go into the hedges. Tennessee talk, it would be go out in the boonies, right? And he says, compel them to come in. That's God's command for the believer to unbelievers. That's God's command for me to you this morning, is to compel you, to entreat you. To persuade, the Bible even says to constrain, to show you that it is absolute necessary. For you, Christian, to show unbelievers that it is absolutely necessary to come to God through faith in His Son, Jesus. You know, when God returns, He will gather His people for this very great feast. It's called the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Literally, it is called the marriage supper. And it's for everyone who has ever turned by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be this great feast in Zion, we could say. Or we could say that the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Ultimately what heaven is, is heaven come down. It is heaven on earth. God restoring all things. God's word says in Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those, favored are those, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is going to gather all the saints of all time 
Every believer in his son. He's going to gather everyone of all time for this great feast. You know, sitting at someone's table is an act of peace. And now Jesus' blood has washed away the Christian sin. God's wrath has been satisfied. The debt has been paid. Christ's righteousness has been given, or we could say imputed, placed, credited to those who believe. Have you been declared not guilty? Are you now blameless and accepted in Jesus? It's only through Jesus' perfect life. It's only through His obedience, through His work, through His resurrection, His ascension to heaven, His intercession, even now. The Bible says that Christ Jesus intercedes for the Christian. Can you think of that? What a truth, what a reality that Jesus Christ is praying for you, Christian. What more encouragement do we need? Are you hidden in Christ? Have you been brought near to God through His Son? Have you been accepted, adopted, loved? Have you been seated at His table? And I need you to understand so clearly that if you're not hidden in Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus, then you are God's enemy. I have no reservations about that. If you are not born again by God's rich grace through faith in Christ alone, whether you realize it or not, you are God's enemy. And God's word commands you to repent and believe, to turn and trust in Christ Jesus. And I must warn you that if you continue to reject Jesus Christ, then the only thing you will taste is that great wine press of wrath as God tramples you under the weight of His judgment and crushes you under the curse of sin. But, 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 turn to Jesus today and live. Be forgiven, brought into the family of God. He is the vine that gives life to all the branches, to all who come to Him in faith. What a great promise we have. He says, all that will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you will come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I won't won't tell you, shoo, I'm busy. I I got things going on. I've got more important people to deal with. He says, if you will come to him, he will not cast you aside. What a promise. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. God's people will come from everywhere and they will feast together. It's the redeemed of all the ages. And there will be eating and there will be feasting at the consummation of the ages because Jesus died for those believing in him, bringing us to God. So will you fall down this morning before the God who made you? who is even sustaining you right now, giving you breath, giving you life. Do you see yourself as a worm? Or as Mephibosheth said, as a dead dog? Or as Paul said, the chiefest of sinners? The Bible says that our good works are as filthy rags to God. Well, imagine how putrid our bad works must be to Him. 
Well, would you throw yourself on the mercy seat of God this morning? Do you see yourself as Mephibosheth, a no-name in a nothing place, crippled and forgotten, living with a death sentence until the king came looking for you? Is that you? Dead in your sins and trespasses against a holy God, crippled by your sins, alone and apart from God. Do you feel as if God doesn't know you? He doesn't know your name. He doesn't even know where you're from, you feel like. And Christian, this is for you too. Do you feel this morning that you don't even know where you're at now? You've wandered so far into sin. Your heart has grown so cold. It's the king looking for you this morning. He is. He is. He really is. Well, I have good news for you. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, when we were still weak and lame and broken, for when we were still without strength in due time, that means at the right time, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. You don't have to clean yourself up to come back to Him. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Him. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will die for one. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates His love to us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. But I can assure you, when you meet Him, you'll never be the same. He won't leave you there. Even now, according to God's loving kindness, He's beckoning the weak. He's, he's beckoning, bidding the lame, the weary, the lost, the frightened, the neglected to come to Him by faith in His Son. And Christian, child of God, I need you to listen very closely. You must, we must, stop acting like your performance dictates God's love for you. For if you are truly a child of God, born again by faith in Jesus, you are loved in the beloved. You're loved for the sake of someone else, Jesus Christ. You're loved because of Jesus. God's kindness to you is based on Jesus. Does it mean we're not called to holiness? Does it mean we're not called to righteous living? It's not, it doesn't mean that we're not called to forsake sin and forsake all and follow Christ. No. But too many of you have fallen into the lie that when you have a bad day, God loves you less. When things are hard, God loves you less. When your heart is cold, God loves you less. And you've believed that. But it's not for your sake. It's for the sake of Christ. This covenant is based on Jesus. And He loves you 
child of God, in the beloved. And dearly beloved of God, I want to encourage you with this. Jesus knows your name. The King knows your name. Isaiah 49 says that your name is engraved on the palms of his hands. This is what he's telling you this morning through his word and by his spirit. He's telling you he has not and he will not forget you, child of God. He has not and he will not forget you. He is committed to you. He has made a covenant to you. And God's love for you, Christian, though that that fire is just smoldering and though that that reed is so bruised and crushed, God's love for you is he is committed to you. And God, his love for you is, is based on his promise. It's given to you based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. And so, what should our response be? How do we react to this? Well, we're to fall on our face before him. Right? Mephibosheth, he comes before the king. He falls at the king. Have mercy. I'm your servant. He says, and then David said, do not fear. For I've come to show you kindness. Fall on your face before him. Confess that you have no worth in yourself. Profess that you're his servant, right? Here's your servant. That your hope is in him and his promises to you. And then remember, he calls you by name. He has, he has sought you. He has searched for you. He has found you. He has called you by name. And then he invites you to his table. He adopts you into his family through faith in the Son. He gives you an inheritance, Christian. He appoints you a member of the royal family. And that inheritance that he gives you, dearly beloved of God, as the Bible says, is every blessing found in Christ Jesus. Every promise of God, every covenant of God is yes, yes, and amen in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. That's our hope. Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have, we have sought you in your word. We have sought you in worship. And we ask that you would, you would feed us. That you would increase our faith. For the weary and for the weak, enliven them, strengthen them. May they know your love in your Son. And for the one who does not know you, O Father, work. Work in their hearts. We rest on your promise that your word will not return void. And we commit all these things into your hands. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.